Greetings from Latter-day Media, presenting our dear friend and epic historian on Joseph Smith and church history, Brother Kay Godfrey. This Come Follow Me video series is a bonus resource to enhance your appreciation of the Prophet Joseph Smith with little-known facts and research about American and church history. We would appreciate you clicking the like button and sharing each video so we can continue bringing you more fascinating content. Enjoy Episode 2, Vermont, the Cradle of Leadership. And now, Kay Godfrey. Welcome back. The last podcast that we had dealt with the Smiths of Topsfield. Those five generations, Robert, Samuel I, Samuel II, Aziel Smith, Joseph Smith Sr., those five generations of Smiths that would lay the foundation eventually for Joseph to accomplish his foreordained ministry. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about the state of Vermont and a little bit about New Hampshire and how they were the cradle of leadership for the church, eventually would be. There are approximately 20 key leaders of the church that were born in this Green Mountain state of Vermont. Let's talk a little bit about the very first one. And since I'm going to be showing you a series of maps, let me kind of detail these and tell you how they work. They're all going to be centered around as if you were leaving from the Joseph Smith Birthplace Memorial in Sharon, Vermont, and then traveling either south, north, east, or west in the state to the location of the birthplace of these various kinds of these various individuals. So at the very top is the Joseph Smith Birthplace Memorial, abbreviated with the acronym there, and at the very bottom of the state is what we're going to address right now, Whittingham, Vermont, the birthplace of Brigham Young. John Young, Brigham's father, had a 51-acre farm near Whittingham, Vermont, which he purchased for $100 from his brother-in-law, Joseph Mosley. Brigham was born June 1, 1801, in Whittingham. Brigham was the ninth child of John and Nabby Young. The exact location of the family cabin is not known. However, someone has placed a memorial stone on a site at the top of Brigham Young Hill, today known as Stimson Hill, identifying a spot. In the Town Hill Memorial Park is found the 12-foot-tall memorial to Brigham Young, a very impressive monument. This location is the site of the old city, or the old village, I should say, of Whittingham. The monument was dedicated May 28, 1950, and is made of Vermont granite. Our next character here, we got two of them. Newell Whitney was born February 5, 1795, and Newell Knight on September 13, 1800. Both were born in Marlborough, Vermont. Now, Newell Whitney would become the second bishop of the church in 1831 and later would become the presiding bishop of the church. Newell Knight was one of the earliest and dearest friends of the prophet Joseph, especially when he lived in the Coltsville, New York area. In April of 1830, the first miracle of the church, of course, was performed on Brother Knight while in Coltsville. The prophet cast out a devil from within him. Shadrach Roundy, a prominent leader of the church in the Kirtland era, and Nauvoo was born January 1st, 1789 in Rockingham, Vermont. 
Zara Pulsifer, one of the presidents of the 70, was also born in Rockingham in the same year, 1789, on June 14th. Brother Pulsifer would later baptize a significant player in church history, a man by the name of Wilford Woodruff, while on the Eastern States Mission. This Rockingham Meeting House is one of the few surviving 18th century meeting homes. It is the most intact barn-like public building that remains to this day in Vermont. Okay, let's turn our attentions to Oliver Cowdery. Oliver Cowdery was born in Wells, Vermont on October 3, 1806. He would live in Wells for three years and then move 30 miles north to the town of Pulteney. He would remain in the Wells-Pulteney area for 19 years. The marker down in the left-hand corner of this slide is a marker that's there by the church in downtown Wells talking a little bit about Oliver Cowdery. In 1825, Oliver moved to Manchester, New York, where he taught school. Oliver was one of the six original members of the church, as well as one of the three witnesses to the Book of Mormon. He also served as an assistant president to the church. Had kind of a funny experience even finding this marker. It was up what I can only term as a, as a timbering road, a lumber road. And when I finally found what I thought was the top of the road, there was no sign of a marker identifying the birthplace of Oliver Cowdery. And yet there was a small trail road of sorts off to the side where it looked like perhaps um, lumber had been brought down out of the top of the hills. And so with a little effort, we made our way up there only to find a little shack up there, a little outbuilding, as well as this granite stone marker dedicated to the birth of Oliver Cowdery. Very, very glad we uh, stayed with it and found this marker. Our next people are Isaac and Elizabeth Hale. They're also from Wells, Vermont, where Oliver Cowdery is from. Isaac inherited his grandfather's home in Wells and later would marry Elizabeth Lewis, who was a Wells resident. In 1791, Isaac and Elizabeth would move from Wells to the Susquehanna Valley. That's in Pennsylvania. And it would be there that Joseph Smith Jr. would eventually meet and marry Emma Hale, their daughter, married on January 27, 1827. Now, perhaps three of the most interesting individuals and heroes to me are the Carters. Uh, the Carter brothers, born in Benson, Jared Carter, Simeon Carter and Gideon Carter. Jared Carter baptized 27 converts in Benson, Vermont, and witnessed many healings. Jared's older brother, Gideon Carter, was killed at the Battle of Crooked River in Missouri on October 25, 1838. The Old Stone Baptist Meeting House that's there in Benson was built in 1826, and by 1831 it was converted into a meeting house for the Mormon congregation that consisted mostly of the Baptist congregation, courtesy of Jared Carter. This congregation became known as the first branch of the church in Vermont. 
On a personal note, Jared Carter also baptized one of my relatives, a man by the name of John Tanner. He was from Lake George, New York. This is on a mission that Jared was on. John Tanner's donations to the Kirtland Temple literally would save it from being foreclosed on. Unfortunately, I am also related to Gerald Tanner, a prominent critic of the church in Salt Lake City. My relations to the Tanners goes through Hubie Brown, a line from Cardston, Alberta, Canada. All right, next we'll move from a man to a site. This is Fort Ticonderoga, an 18th century star fort built by the French during the French and Indian War of 1756 through 1763. The fort was occupied by the British during the Revolutionary War. In May of 1775, it was captured by the Vermont Green Mountain Boys under the command of Ethan Allen and Benedict Arnold. So why do I show this? On July 8, 1758, Solomon Mack was involved at the Battle of Ticonderoga, the bloodiest battle prior to the Civil War. 3,000 British and American soldiers were killed, assaulting the fort. Solomon Mack was nearly killed when a ball passed within one half of an inch of his neck. All right, our next individual. In the winter of 1843, William Hyde organized a branch of the church in Woodstock. This branch consisted of 35 baptized members. And while laboring in Woodstock, William and his companion, Erastus Snow, would learn of Joseph Smith's martyrdom at Carthage Jail. William Hyde is the founder of Hyde Park in Cache Valley. Now I'd like to introduce you to the Johnsons, three significant Johnson members, Luke, Lyman, and Miranda. Pomfret, Vermont, where these individuals are born, is probably 10 miles is all from the birthplace of Joseph Smith in Sharon, Vermont. Luke Johnston was born on November the 3rd, 1807 in Pomfret. His brother Lyman was born on October 24th, 1811. Both were members of the original Quorum of Twelve Apostles from 1835 to 1838. Now, their sister Miranda Johnson, wife of Orson Hyde, was also born in Pomfret, June 28, 1815. Now, Luke was excommunicated from the church in 1838, but was rebaptized in 1846, and he died in 1861 in Salt Lake City at the home of Orson Hyde. Lyman was also excommunicated from the church the same year, 1838. Um, he did not come back into the church, and he actually drowned in the Mississippi River in 1859. Now, Miranda Johnson Hyde became a plural wife of the prophet Joseph Smith in late 1842. She died in Salt Lake City in 1886. The Johnsons were certainly significant in the early history of the church. In 1813, the Smith family moved to Norwich, Norwich, Vermont. Now, when I say the Smith family, we're talking Joseph Sr., his wife Lucy Mack, and now baby Joseph, young Joseph. They moved to Norwich. This would be the last place that the family would live in Vermont before they would make the big trek to Palmyra, New York. 
They would farm 140 acres rented from Squire Constant Murdoch there in Norwich. Don Carlos Smith was born on March 25th, 1816, while the family lived in Norwich. Now, 1816 would be called the year without a summer. Snow fell in June and July. Because of three successive years of crop failure, the Smiths were heavily indebted, so much so that they were warned out of town and made every effort to to take care of their indebtedness and then to leave, and this would be when they would travel to Palmyra, New York. So after resolving their debts, they, they left this home. The circled area of this home there in Norwich is the portion of the home that, that they lived in. This home still stands today, one of the few sites where Joseph Smith Jr. lived that is still standing and not an archaeological site. Now, Norwich is kind of a funny place. It has its old traditions. I thought I'd share one with you. They're called witching windows or coffin windows. As you can see, that window is at a 45-degree angle. And why? Because witches on broomsticks could not fly at a 45-degree angle. You find some of this kind of tradition throughout upstate New York and Vermont and New Hampshire. All right. We're going to move now to Royalton, Vermont, to the home of a man by the name of Dr. Joseph Dennison. His home still stands today, right there. A beautiful home's been refurbished, and they have a little placard that says that it was the home of Dr. Dennison prior to 1815. Now, Dr. Dennison is in our histories. Dr. Dennison has kind of a, uh, sh a cloudy, shadowed um, history in the life of the prophet Joseph Smith. He was involved in assisting Lucy with the birth of Joseph Smith Jr., Lucy possibly having complications and needing to call in a doctor from nearby uh, Royalton to assist with the delivery. And then also... It, Research indicates that Dr. Dennison played some role in the tarring and feathering of Joseph at the in Hiram, Ohio, at the home of John Johnson, when they were trying to pour nitric acid down his throat and castrating. Um, it's interesting in the ledger in pencil, Dr. Dennison has wrote relative to the birth of Joseph Smith, "If I had known how he was going to turn out, I would have smothered the little cuss." So it's interesting how some of our neighbors end up being some of our best friends and perhaps some of them not. We're now going to shift the gears a little bit and we're going to go to the Solomon and Daniel Mack home site. These home sites that I'm going to show you are on property owned by the church there at the Birthplace Memorial. First, Solomon Mack home built sometime between 1790 and 1800. Solomon Mack was not the original builder of the home. He moved into a home already standing. It was a clapboard-sided home that had a handmade brick chimney of sorts. This is where it stood, just down the hill from the birthplace location of Joseph. And then just up the hill from Solomon Mack was his son Daniel's home. Now, this was a very large home at the time, a home that was over 1,700 square feet. The cellar alone was 1,000 square feet. 
The property also had three terrace stone walls there at the Daniel Mac site, a 100-foot terraced area, a 360-foot, and a 460-foot terraced area, probably for orchards at the time. Well, at the time that Daniel lived here on this property, he had one 13-year-old son by the name of Wilder Mac living in the home. So Daniel and Father Solomon Mack's homes are on property owned by the church just below the birthplace site of Joseph Smith, Jr. Aziel Smith, who had moved also up into the Tunbridge, Royalton, Sharon area, he, his son Stephen and his daughter Sarah, these are Aziel's son and daughter, are buried in the Royalton Cemetery. Stephen died July 25th, 1802 at the age of only 17. And Sarah lived to marry Joseph Stafford and she died and is buried also in the Royalton Cemetery on May 27th, 1824. Two of Solomon Mack's sons, Stephen and Daniel Mack, also had property in and near the Joseph Smith Birthplace Memorial. Um, we've talked a little bit about Solomon Mack's property and Daniel Mack's property up the street. But Daniel and Stephen also owned other properties in and around the uh, Sharon, Vermont area, as you can see by the slide there. Stephen was a prominent and prosperous farmer and businessman in this area. And we'll call this area Tunbridge because primarily that's where both Stephen and Daniel would eventually work out of. Uh, Stephen owned a, a sawmill. He owned an oil mill. Now, what's an oil mill? It's a mill to grind oil-bearing seeds to extract vegetable oil from them. He had a fuller's mill. A fuller's mill is for cleaning and pressing clothing. And then he had a clothier shop that makes cloth and rope and bags and things made out of cloth. He also had a tainter's bar. I didn't know what a tainter's bar was until I started to research. And this is a device that actually controls water flow, much like a floodgate. And then he had a shop for cutting and heading rails. All of this Stephen Mack had. He was probably one of, if not the most prosperous individual at the time in Tunbridge. Now, Daniel Mack's property, purchased in 1799, was next to Stephen's. And again, just down the street from where his home was next to his father, Solomon Mack. There is some indication, perhaps, that the 100-acre parcel of property that Joseph Smith Jr. would eventually be born on, a small cabin rented to the family by Solomon Mack, was perhaps purchased from Daniel Mack initially on property that, that he owned. Okay, we're going to shift gears a little bit now. I've shown you properties owned and managed by the Macks. I'd like to go to the Smith family and talk a little bit about Aziel Smith. From our first podcast, you perhaps remember that after settling the debts of his father, Samuel II, Aziel Smith left Topsfield never to return, and they moved up into the Tunbridge, Vermont area because property was relatively cheap, and he initially purchased an 83-acre parcel of land. The uh, picture that you see here is a picture of the home near Ward Hill that Aziel lived in, and uh, an, a nice home. We don't know if it was a home existing, 
we feel that's probably the case that he would move into. In 1797, Aziel Smith and his children, which would include Jesse and Joseph Smith Sr., organized a church. The church would be called the Universalist Church, and there were 15 others on the register that belonged to the North Tunbridge Universal Church. It's a picture of what it looked like initially and the church site today. What do universalists believe? Let me quote, There is one God whose nature is love, revealed to one Lord Jesus Christ by one Holy Spirit of grace, who will finally restore the whole family of mankind to holiness and happiness. This is the concept adhered to by Aziel Smith, Jesse Smith, uh, Joseph Smith Sr., some of the children of, uh, of Aziel Smith. The Smiths lived on their property there on two different occasions. Now, when I'm talking the Smiths, I'm talking now Joseph Smith Sr. He was given acreage as a wedding gift, the property being next to Aziel Smith's property. The picture indicates perhaps what the home looked like of Joseph Smith Sr., Unfortunately, after living there, moving away, and having to come back, they would eventually sell the property for half of its value, some $800 is all, to clear debt that the Joseph Smith Sr. family had incurred while living in Randolph, Vermont. Another story. This particular picture shows you where that home of Joseph Smith Sr. would have been and what it looks like today. There has been a little bit of an archaeological dig there to determine uh, artifacts and, and things. A few things were found, but not much. But today it is simply identified by some of the foundation stones that still exist there. This would be the home, again, where Hiram was born, where Alvin was born, and where Sophronia was born. Three children of Joseph Smith Sr. were born while living at this home. Okay, I want to introduce you to a, a friend of both the Smiths and the Macs. His name was John Mudgett. He was a business partner of Stephen Mack, the fellow who had all those different businesses there in, in Topsfield. Uh, he matched a wedding dowry of $500 that Stephen Mack gave Lucy when, when she and, and, and Joseph Sr. were married. So now they have $1,000 for their marriage. And Joseph Sr. would find that this $1,000 is going to become very, very important. This money, again, was going to be used to finally clear the family's name and get out of debt. But unfortunately, all this debt that was incurred while living at the old homestead there in Tunbridge would uh, be the last time that Joseph Smith Sr. would ever own property outright. Mr. Mudgett is buried in the Hutchinson Cemetery, he died on January 27, 1801, at the young age of 29. Now, I'm going to take you into Tunbridge now and introduce you to where some of these businesses are that Stephen Mack owned and managed. This is a, a picture of his, his sawmill, or what's left of his sawmill, the sawmill location. The general store that Stephen Mack had is just up the street a bit. This particular general store dates back to 1820. However, its foundation stones would lead you to believe that an earlier structure, perhaps the general store of Stephen Mack, once stood in this particular spot. 
Now, we've alluded to all of this indebtedness that Joseph Sr. and Lucy Mack had. It happened when they were living in the Randolph, Vermont area. Um, While in Randolph, Lucy became seriously ill with tuberculosis. She got on her knees one night and covenanted with the Lord that if he would bless her to recover, she would dedicate her life to his service. Well, Lucy did recover. However, she said relative to living in Randolph, quote, I was disappointed, however, that there was not then I felt upon the earth the religion which I sought. Well, while living in Randolph, let's talk about this story of indebtedness. Joseph Sr. began crystallizing a particular kind of ginseng root that he collected in the, uh, in the forest there in Vermont. He collected enough ginseng root to ship to China to get a large return on. A neighbor of Joseph Sr. took the root to China along with root that he had collected. The man's name was Mr. Stevens. And he sold Joseph's ginseng root in China for almost $4,000. In returning to Tunbridge and to, in, turning, in returning to Randolph, where the family lived, um, he told Joseph Sr. that he was sorry to say, but all he had to show for his efforts was a chest of tea, that the sale did not happen. And so Joseph now found himself broken, penniless. He was in debt. His creditors in Boston, for all of the supplies that he had furnished his store with, were demanding their, their money. And so Joseph was in debt. It seems that Mr. Stevens absconded with that $4,000 and took off to Canada, and he was never caught, and the money was never returned. And so that's ultimately led Joseph and Lucy um, selling their property that they had there in Tunbridge, giving up their wedding dowry money given them, and then ultimately having to live on property as a renter there in Sharon, Vermont, on property owned by Lucy's father, Solomon Mack. And this would be on that very property where Joseph Smith Jr. would eventually be born. Okay, we're going to shift and go upstream a bit there in Vermont to Danville, Danville Branch. The Danville Branch consisted of 23 members, primarily due to the proselyting efforts of one John Byington, an original member of the Quorum of Twelve Apostles, who was serving a mission in that particular area. Danville is an interesting place. It hosts the annual Dowsers Convention for those that are interested in divining rods. And with that having been said, on this slide, I've got a couple of references to the fact that Oliver Cowdery Oliver Cowdery um, used divining rods of sorts on occasion. Erastus Snow is an interesting individual. He was a member of the Quorum of Twelve Apostles, and he was born in St. Johnsbury, Vermont, on November the 9th, 1818. Erastus was converted to the gospel of Jesus Christ when he heard the testimonies of Two missionaries in the area of St. Johnsbury, Orson Pratt and Luke Johnson, were up visiting and proselyting, and Erastus Snow became converted to the gospel in 1832. From July 17th 
through July 19th of 1835, the Twelve Apostles of the Church held the first Vermont Conference of the Church there in St. Johnsbury. The St. Johnsbury branch consisted of 41 members. The conference was represented by seven churches, and the Sunday session of conference there in St. Johnsbury was attended by more than 1,000 people. I found this original picture down there quite interesting as it shows a crew of people lined up with shovels to create a road. That's how they made their roads throughout Vermont. People with shovels. Today in St. Johnsbury is a small ward building. My wife and I had an opportunity to go and attend. Small congregation of perhaps less than 75. Nevertheless, a beautiful building. Okay, now I'm going to introduce you to one of the most uh, important early members of the church, a man by the name of Heber C. Kimball. Heber C. Kimball was born June 14, 1801, in the little town of Sheldon, Vermont, very, very close to the Canadian border. All six of his siblings were born in Sheldon. The Kimballs lived on a 200-acre farm near the confluence of the Black Creek and Missisquoi River. Heber was an original member of the Twelve Apostles. On July 5, 1976, this granite monument that you see on the slide was placed in the Sheldon Creek Cemetery in honor of Heber C. Kimball. It was dedicated by President Spencer W. Kimball, a great-grandson. Heber was baptized a member of the church because of one very well-placed Book of Mormon by Samuel Smith the first missionary of the church in 1830. Vermont used to be part of, as you see on this map, what we know today is the state of New Hampshire. All of it used to be New Hampshire, so I guess New Hampshire and then Vermont. So it only makes sense that a few early and great ones would come out of the state of New Hampshire. Let's identify who those would be. Josiah Stoll was born in Winchester, New Hampshire, on March 22, 1770. He moved from there to Colesville, New York, and he was a very successful farmer in Colesville, and he took the opportunity to employ Joseph and his father to help him find lost Spanish silver mines in the Harmony, Pennsylvania area. Josiah was a very true friend to Joseph and aided and assisted him on a variety of fronts. King Follett was also born in Winchester on July 26, 1788. He was baptized in the spring of 1831 when living near Kirtland, Ohio. He was the last member of the church to be released from the Columbia, Missouri area as a result of the 1838 Missouri-Mormon War. Follett was killed March the 9th, 1844, when digging a well in Nauvoo. One of the most prophetic discourses delivered by the prophet Joseph Smith was given at the funeral services of King Follett. Lorenzo Snow would advertise one of these sermons by saying, quote, As man is, God once was. As God is, man can become. Now we're going to shift gears and go to John Johnson. Now, I mentioned the Johnson children, Luke Johnson and Miranda Johnson and Lyman Johnson, all born in Pomfret. Well, 
Before that, John Johnson, dad, his birthplace was in Chesterfield, New Hampshire. Born April the 11th, 1778. His home in Hiram, Ohio, when the family would eventually move to Ohio, would become the headquarters of the church from September 1831 through September of 1832. At the Johnson home, Joseph would receive 15 revelations, including perhaps the most significant revelation, section 76. However, at the home of John Johnson in Hiram, Ohio, Joseph would also be tarred and feathered. That was on March 24th, 1832. Joseph would recount, and I quote, I found myself going out of the door in the hands of about a dozen men, some of whose hands were in my hair and some who had hold of my shirt, drawers, and limbs. They had concluded not to kill me, but to beat and scratch me well, tear off my shirt, drawers, and leave me naked. They ran back and fetched a bucket of tar, and they tried to force the tar paddle into my mouth. All my clothes were torn off, torn off me except my shirt collar, and one man fell on me and scratched my body with his nails like a mad cat. So unfortunately, where great things were received and great things accomplished, unfortunately, Satan is to be found. And this is the place where Joseph was tarred and feathered. Now, I'm going to go up the street a ways here in New Hampshire to a couple of towns. Gilsom, New Hampshire is considered Solomon Mack's hometown, whereas nearby Marlow, New Hampshire is considered to be Solomon Mack's brothers and sisters' hometown. So we need to talk a little bit about the location of Solomon Mack in particular. Lucy Mack was born in Gilsom on July 8th, 1775. Her birth home is located about 150 feet from the Centennial Bond Cemetery, where her father, Solomon Mack, is buried. Solomon's burial location is adjacent to the ex to extended family members that are that are buried there in that cemetery also. The burial location is near and on top of a crypt. You can kind of see the outline of stones. Underneath this, this is kind of on a hill, and below it is access to a crypt that's under all of this uh, that is used to store coffins with bodies during the course of the winter uh, when the ground is just too frozen and too hard to dig and bury people. So it's interesting uh, uh, where he's buried. Now, Gilsom has many evidences of the Macs having been there, in particular Solomon Mac, the Mac legacy. And this is kind of interesting. Mud season is not just folklore in Vermont and New Hampshire, but very real in Vermont. And in New Hampshire, you can see these signs that you just can't, some roads are impassable during this particular season of the year called mud season. Every small town has its little village and general store, including there in Gilsom as well as Marlow. Marlow is a very patriotic Place. They fly their flags on a regular basis. And from Marlow, in a distance, you can see Mac Mountain, named after the, the Mac family, in particular Solomon Mac. Marlow has numerous Mac family members, as you can see, engraved on monuments and stones in the town as a tribute to their involvement in, in government and in the war. Leave the Macs and swing in 
to New Hampshire with the Asia Smith family, and we talked a little bit about this in our first podcast, that after Asia's military experience, he purchased property in Dairyfield, Man- which today is Manchester, New Hampshire. So we're going to go to Dairyfield Man- or Manchester and, and talk a little bit about this. Um, there was a 100-acre farm that today is Pine Grove Cemetery um, that was, was owned by Azio Smith. And again, you can see that it's a, that it's a cemetery today. It would be there at this site that, again, John Smith, uh, Joseph Sr.'s brother, was born. John would become the fifth patriarch of the church and eventually president of the Diamond Stake, Diamond, Missouri. Aziel sold this property there in um, Dairyfield or Manchester today and uh, returned to his birthplace home in Topsfield. If you remember, they swapped places. Samuel III or Samuel Jr. took over Dairyfield and Joseph went back to Topsfield. So just a little idea of where Dairyfield or Manchester is and the property owned by Aziel that he gave up to go back to Topsfield. Now in New Hampshire is a really interesting site. There's a in the center of this picture is a is a home. And this home stood for a while. This is the home that the family would move to once they left Sharon, Vermont. And they would eventually end up in West Lebanon. Now, young Joseph at this time is seven, eight years old. Now, this particular home that you see was torn down in 1967 because it was dilapidated. The Smith moved into this home in 1811, and so with Joseph's birth in 1805, gives you some perspective as to his age. Now, what was significant here is what happened to Joseph Smith. Um, There's a KFC that sits there right now, KFC slash Taco Bell. And I have changed the acronym of Kentucky Fried Chicken to be Knowledge, Faith, and Courage because of what took place in this home. It was here in 1813 that a plague of typhoid fever just devastated the New Hampshire countryside. And it was here that an individual named Nathan Smith would become a hero to members of the church as he performed an operation that would save Joseph's leg and his life for that matter. But there's a second hero here that is not often discussed, and it happens to be his older brother Hiram. And I show you this slide because it's likewise in New Hampshire, just up the street from West Lebanon, where this leg operation took place. And it happens to be Dartmouth College. Dartmouth College. Before Dartmouth College, Moore's Charity Academy sat on this property. And it was here at Moore's Charity Academy, which is four and a half miles from West Lebanon, that Hiram attended what you would call maybe middle school. And while attending school there, Hiram took the opportunity to talk about the plight of his younger brother, Joseph Jr., and his leg-related issues. And it's interesting that perhaps one who might have overheard this conversation might have been none other than Nathan Smith, founder of Dartmouth School, who now took an interest in wanting to see this young boy four miles away and went and saw and eventually was able to operate on Joseph's leg and, uh, and save, his, 
save his life. So we have a couple of potential heroes here in Nathan Smith, and perhaps we should give some credit to to something that Hiram Smith might have done while attending Moore's Charity Academy. So there's so many stories, so many stories, and so many players in Vermont and New Hampshire that played such a significant role in the early history of the church. <laughs> little did little Joseph know that his best friends lived just down the street from him there, there in Vermont. So Vermont and New Hampshire, from small beginnings, great things came to pass, and we have to give it credit to be the cradle of the church leadership. Thank you, and I look forward to meeting with you again on our next podcast. Thank you for listening today and for sharing this ComeFollowMe2021.com website and podcast with families, friends, teachers, and leaders. We appreciate our listening audience.